turn to the Gospel of Luke, and before we do that, just a couple quick announcements. Do we have any uh, correspondence, Nikki or Katie, from uh, Jamaica, from Tammy? Did you get her email? No? Okay. Anyway, just keep them in prayer. Tammy, Chrissy, and Wally uh, ministering the Word there, and God is blessing uh, their efforts. Praise the Lord for that. Continue to pray for them. They'll be returning on Wednesday. Other announcements. Uh, Franklin Graham is going to be in Springfield at the, uh, what do they call that, the Big E uh, on Saturday. Um, encourage the Gospel. Bring someone who's not saved to, the, to hear the Gospel. Uh, pray for the gospel as it's going forth around New England. Uh, I always found Franklin Graham to be a better preacher than his dad, believe it or not. I heard him when he came to Worcester back in 19... Well, I think it was in the 90s anyway, and uh, he, he proclaims the word powerfully. Praise the Lord for that. Also, uh, in a couple of weeks, God willing, we're planning on having a picnic... Um, and I think I can say this because he's not here. Wally will be turning 75. He never likes to celebrate his birthday, but that will be another reason why we might be able to get together. And Doreen and Gina are kind of working on something. I'll have more information. Don't say a thing to Wally. <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll have a picnic. I've been wanting to have a picnic anyway. And where it will be, that's undecided right now. If you have an idea, you might want to run that by Doreen possibly. Uh, and we'll see where it goes. So anyway, let's see what happens there. And lastly, um, as we're trying to continue with our series on journeying through the New Testament, uh, we've done recently Matthew, Mark, today will be Luke. It should be John next week, but because Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, we're going to skip John for next week and go to Acts for next week. So next week's assignment for those of you that would want to follow this series rather closely, read the book of Acts, 28 chapters. Uh, that's what we'll talk about next week. So turn with me now, if you would, to the book of Luke, chapter number 1. And we're going to read the first four verses of Luke, chapter 1. Do we have the script uh, for it, Nick, up on the screen? Okay, that's the title, Jesus, a friend for sinners. While we're waiting on that, let me ask you this. For those of you that are familiar with your Bible, familiar with the book of Luke, what sticks out in your mind? When you think of the Gospel of Luke, what comes to your mind? Something in it or something about it? Give me a shout now. What what are you thinking of, Greg? The The rich man and Lazarus. Okay, go ahead. Anything else, Doreen? Thank you. Anybody else? Shout it out again. Amen. Very good. Amen. Chapter 24. Beautiful. Anyway, hopefully uh, we're familiar enough with the Gospel of Luke that what I'm about to speak on won't be so unfamiliar to you and that you will be blessed. And that's our hope and our prayer. Beginning at Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1, reading in the English Standard Version, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, which Luke is implying that others have taken up the task of trying to record the life of Jesus similar to himself. He's not the originator of it. He's not the first one to do it. He's informing us that others took this task on for themselves. And who wouldn't? 
You think of great men that have lived and women in the past. Everybody has a, a biography written about a great person. The, the Bonapartes, the Julius Caesars, presidents of the United States. Seems like every time a president retires from office that a year or two later we have a biography about him. How about the Lord Jesus? Ought not a biography to be written about Him? Well, look, Luke informs us that others took up the same idea. Now, verse 2, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us. Luke is indicating that he is not an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus' life. He may not have ever even seen Him. Obviously, it didn't accompany Him in His ministry as other writers of the Bible did. Verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This is the only Gospel, by the way, that we know to whom it is specifically addressed to Theophilus. And we'll get to him uh, in a bit. In the last verse, I want to read with you that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. Don't you like that verse 4? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I think everybody wants to have a degree of security, wants to feel, I've got it. I've got the right thing. When you compare Christianity with other religions, one thing we can say about Christianity, our leader, our captain, our savior is risen from the dead. He's alive at the right hand of God. What other religion can make such a boast as Christians? who profess Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, we've got a lot of shouting of hallelujahs to do when we think about the realities of the person to whom we are praising and worshiping. Well, Luke has a lot to say about this esteemed individual. Let me give you some what I think are some of the highlights. Some of you mentioned these already. First of all, it gives us the longest narrative about Jesus' birth and things that surrounded it both before and after that. At 12 years of age, he went into the temple. He baffled the scribes and others that were listening to him. He reads the book of Isaiah 61 and he says, The Spirit is upon me. That should have stopped the world right there. Certainly the Jewish world. Peter says, After seeing the fulfillment of Jesus' words in the fishing expedition, He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Boy, he recognized who he was in uh, attendance with. He touches the casket of a boy who was being carried to the burial ground. His feet are anointed in the Pharisee's house by a woman of the city. Luke brings out that he spent all his all her living on physicians and never got healed. He spoke of Jesus' decease on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah appear 
and as recorded in Mark and also in Matthew, only Luke says what communications were had at that occasion. And what does Luke say? They spoke about his decease or his departure or his exodus. We'll get to that as well. We have the Good Samaritan. We have the, uh, the lost coin. We have the lost sheep. And we have the lost son, all in the 15th chapter. We already mentioned Lazarus and the rich man, the ten lepers that were cleansed. We have the publican and the Pharisee that go into the temple to pray. We have Zacchaeus, that little wee-wee of a man that went up on the tree and looked at Jesus from that profile so he could see Him. And then the way Jesus says on the cross to the to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. I think that's a wonderful highlight. And these are wonderful highlights. And there are many more. The Gospel of Luke is the longest of all of the Gospels by far, by over 400 plus verses, or 500 closer, uh, to Matthew, which would be the next longest. Though it's only 24 chapters, Luke is 24, Matthew is 28. It's the only gospel that specifies that it was written to an individual. From a Gentile to a Gentile. Now it's been questioned whether this Theophilus is an actual person or whether he represents a general audience of people. What does the word Theophilus mean? It means friend of God. He's writing to a friend of God. And when we get to the book of Acts, Luke mentions that he had written the former writing to the same individual, Theophilus. So, this Theophilus, assuming that it is a probably a person in a high rank of office in government of some sort, that he's the recipient of it, just think of how much material Luke, the inspired author, is writing to one man. 28 chapters in Acts, 24 chapters in in uh, Luke, combine them together, that makes up over one quarter of the whole book of the New Covenant, the New Testament, which as we know is 27 books. One quarter of the material of the New Testament is written by Luke. Don't you think Luke deserves our attention? And I must say personally that it is my favorite gospel. I love all the Gospels, of course, I think we all do, but if I had a choice and I was on a deserted island and I was only to have, able to have one Gospel, I think I would choose Luke. I just love so many things in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm sure you do too. He describes his writing tactic as being an orderly account, having thoroughly investigated what he's about to write so that the audience, Theophilus, and no doubt others too who would read in the future, they would have absolute confidence that this is the document about the Son of God and was reliable. That's what we want. We want reliability. We want to be certain about what we are counting on that it is accurate. And Luke takes great measures to make this an accurate presentation about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of Man theme runs throughout the book, no doubt. It's written by Luke. In the book of Colossians 14, Paul describes him, Luke, the beloved physician. Luke's a physician. 
That's why we're titling this sermon, The Doctor's Orders. He's the doctor. You know, if there's anybody that people talk about as a resource or someone that they're dependent upon, think of it. Well, the doctor told me this. The doctor's orders were that I should do this. Or I've got a doctor's... I hear that all the time. Those of you that are over 50, 60, it's almost like a regular thing. Now, I got a doctor's appointment. Oh, what about next? I have another doctor's appointment. What about... I haven't... It's doctor, doctor, doctor. And what the doctor says... Very few people go against what the doctor prescribes, right? I mean, that's sort of like the general rule. They're the experts. They've studied. They've examined lots of people. When my son was going to be operated on, my wife and I had the opportunity. The surgeon invited us into a, 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 an area of the hospital with my son, and he was going to describe to us what was going to happen and how long it was going to take. And my wife nervously said, Have you ever done this before? And he said, ma'am, I've done this 800 times. A man in his 50s. So that gave us some confidence that we could trust the doctor. Well, we're not going to trust Luke simply because he's a doctor, but because he is inspired of God. And he has gone about it in a very careful, methodical way so that he could present his material in an orderly fashion. There is a definite reason for the sequence of things, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, unlike any of the other Gospels. Now, I said that Luke is a physician, of course. Luke records five different healings that Matthew, Mark, or John do not record, particularly Matthew and Mark, because we're talking primarily here about the synoptic Gospels. He mentions about the woman who uh, had the issue of blood. It, he says this, and only him, she spent all her living on the physicians. Now, here he is, a physician himself. I'm sure he's proud about his, his office or his calling in life as a physician, a very commendable service to mankind, probably had uh, the, what they call the Hippocrates uh, Hippocratic, there it is, a oath that he would do all in his power. And of course they had connected this with the gods, but their desire was that they would take all efforts possible to sustain life, to help the individual, to be compassionate towards the person, and to take all measures necessary for the good of the individual, for their survival in the healthiest way possible and the longest time possible. And how appropriate then that Luke, being the physician, writes so much about this caring Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about him in a second. It's when Jesus opens up the epistle of Isaiah, if I can call it that. And uh, after he reads, it says, They marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And he says, You're going to say to me, Physician, heal yourself. He says, As it says... In the Proverbs, physician, heal thyself. Now, that may have been a proverbial saying that was in circulation at the time. We don't have any specific note of that being in the proverb. It might be a generalization of some sort, but whatever. He says, Luke is adding this, of course, in his Gospel account, that the, the accusers are going to say, Physician, heal yourself. We've heard what you've done in, your country, in that country. You do it in our country as well. He adds that word physician. So there's definitely a physician's touch 
to this epistle. Now, if you were asked, as I have asked in the past, how would you classify the book of Luke? What, what is the theme of the book? Well, I could not come up with a theme. It's been generalized to say that this book, the Gospel of Luke, depicts Jesus as the Son of God. Rather, the Son of Man. John is the Son of God. Mark is the servant of the Lord's. And Matthew, of course, is the King. The Son of Man. But, I think there are some unique things about Luke, and this is how, why I think we can come down to some possible themes that Luke is trying to hit in the Gospel. And because Luke and Acts are really, I like to think of it as one book. It's like, this is the, the, the Old Covenant, and here is the New Covenant, you could say. The Gospel of Luke is like the Old Covenant, and then... The book of Acts is like a new covenant. In some ways, comparing our Bible to the Gospel of Luke and to the book of Acts in the way in which they they mesh with one another and one feeds into the next. And we'll talk more about that when we speak about Acts next week. But here are the three things that I think that are unique in the Gospel of Luke that sticks out in my mind from reading carefully the book of Luke. The first thing would be Luke's attention given to death and the afterlife. The afterlife. That's an important topic, the afterlife. Although very few people put emphasis on the afterlife, for whatever reason, I think it's just a natural makeup. We don't want to think of eternity, do we? Even though the Bible says God has put eternity in our hearts, man just does not want to think about the world to come. I'm sure you have mingled and I have mingled with elderly people. Sometimes they're very sick, they're very close to the end of their life, and they have no preparation for the afterlife. No thoughts about where are they going to spend eternity. It's a crucial question, an important one, and I think the Gospel of Luke can be very helpful in our concerns an investigation of the doctrine of the afterlife. And let me give you some examples. Of course, we have the rich man and Lazarus. And I can't take a lot of time in going into all the details. But Jesus, you could say, pulls back the curtain for us and gives us some insight to what was otherwise in the Old Testament rather obscure. We don't have a lot of detail, do we, about old in the Old Testament about the afterlife. I mean, we can read about Samuel who came up, it seems, and communicated to, uh, to Saul uh, what was going to happen. And he says, why have you disturbed me? So we get an impression, at least, at least from 1 Samuel 28, that Samuel, or the, a, person, a righteous person in the afterlife, was enjoying some peace and quietude in that state that he was in. And there are other shadows in the Old Testament that indicate that there's life after death, but no details. When we turn to the New Testament, we have in, been, we've been informed from the book of Timothy that Jesus brought, brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. He brought it to light, indicating that... Previous to Jesus' coming, what was known about the afterlife and the prospects of what happens after one dies was not clearly 
mocked out in the Old Testament, but now Jesus, who brings life and immortality to light, is going to expose what we would otherwise not be certain about. And he pulls back the curtain and he tells us about a rich man and Lazarus that are both in a state after life in this world who are surviving in the next world. And I won't go into all the details. I think most of us here are familiar enough with it. But I just want to draw your attention to the fact that he does pull back the curtain and he gives us an understanding that life doesn't end when you breathe your last breath. That's only the last breath in this world and then you'll breathe another life in the next world, so to speak. As the body without the spirit is dead, the body dies, but the spirit continues to live, either with the Lord or away from the Lord in the darkness forever and ever. When Simeon is brought by the spirit into the temple... Who's there? Jesus, who's just eight days old. He has the privilege of taking Jesus in his arms as a baby. And what does he say? It's a great verse to lodge in your mind when you're dealing with somebody who's on the brink of leaving this world. And I tell the people this. I says, look it, I hope you can die with the same words that Simeon did when he was about to die. When he, after seeing the Lord Jesus, he says, now mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Let now thy servant depart in peace. The only way you can leave this world in peace is by comprehending the Lord Jesus, embracing Him, trusting Him, putting faith in Him, and in a sense really having seen the Lord. Then you can say, I'm ready to go. Absent from the body, then present with the Lord. I mentioned in Luke chapter 9 at the Mount of Transfiguration, the discussion that went on between Jesus and Moses and Elijah was His departure out of Jerusalem. Apparently there was knowledge that they had, Elijah and Moses, about Jesus' death that he would suffer at Calvary in the city of Jerusalem. And that was a discussion. And the word there is exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. I think it's in reference to where he goes after this world. We mentioned already the thief on the cross when Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that a great thing to have the word of the Lord assure you? People often say, oh, nobody knows where they're going when they die. And naturally speaking, you don't. You need a higher authority to give you that confidence, don't you? And what higher authority can we go to than to the word of God? That is the final arbitrator of all inquiries. So I say to people this, you don't think anybody can know where they're going after they die? So pretend that you were the thief on the cross. And here your deathbed is right next to the deathbed of Jesus. And just before you and He died, He, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the author of our salvation, says to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I say, do you think that that thief had any doubt as to where he was going to go when he died? 
Do you think he was doubting that at all? I doubt it. I think he had perfect peace and assurance. And that's what we can have when we're trusting the Word of the Lord. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, just before he dies, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now, doesn't that remind you of the words that Stephen used when he was about to be, st- when he was stoned and about to die? What were his, his last words? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then in, also in the book of Acts chapter 1, we read about Judas Iscariot who died. And it says, and he went to his own place. He went to his own place. I think the Lord Jesus is talking about hell there. Anyway, that's one of the unique things I believe is found in the Gospel of Luke. Another thing that's unique about the Gospel of Luke is the emphasis and references to the Holy Spirit. If you compare it to Matthew and Mark, though they do refer to the Spirit, but certainly not to the degree degree that Luke does. Luke is the writer of the Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts is very clear upon that. Matter of fact, the book of Acts should better be uh, defined as the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Rather than just the Acts of the Apostles, the Apostles could do nothing unless they were empowered by the Spirit. So it's really the Spirit that is active in the book of Acts. John the Baptist, it says of him, shall be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. No other gospel tells you that. Luke tells you that. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Simeon, we already said, came by the Spirit into the temple. In this one, chapter 11, again, not found in any other gospel, Jesus says, how much more, if you ask of your Father for this or that, He will give it to you? How much more when we ask our Heavenly Father, will He not much more give us the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Boy, that's a text worth expositing on, but I won't get into that right now. But I just want you to see the emphasis that Luke places on the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke. In the way the Gospel of Luke ends in the 24th chapter, Jesus says this to His apostles, that I will send the promise of My Father upon you, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power. From on high. That's how the Gospel of Luke ends. Wait. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit when He would come upon you. Again, I'm going to reserve some further thoughts on that to uh, next week's message in the book of Acts. And then the third, and I think this is maybe the most prominent theme or subject that Luke delves into, and that is that Jesus a friend for sinners. And who they were, let's look at this a little bit in Luke 5.30. It says, an accusation made by the scribes and Pharisees. Why 
do you eat and drink with sinners? Boy, that sounded like a good way of accusing Jesus of being a false prophet, a false teacher. Look at his associates. In chapter 15, verse 2, again, this man receives sinners and eats with them, the Pharisees and scribes had said. In chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans or tax-gatherers and sinners. In the 18th chapter, we have a publican and a Pharisee that go into the temple to pray. And what does the publican pray, the tax gatherer? Lord or God, have mercy upon me, a what? A sinner. In the 19th chapter, when Jesus says to Zacharias, I must abide in your house today. He came down from the sycamore tree and Jesus went to be a guest in the house of Zechariah. And guess what the, uh, the accusers said? This man has gone to be a guest in a house with a man that is a what? A sinner. They had labeled tax gatherers as being the worst of the worst. And I think it's important for us to understand what was a tax gatherer? What was a publican? The publican is the King James word. I don't know if some of your translations would translate it the same way. But we're talking about a tax gatherer. And what they were was this. They were a despised group of Jewish people who collected taxes for the government for a profit. Rome would contract with these tax gatherers who were generally speaking wealthy men. And there was a certain amount of money that each region was expected to have for the Roman government that the tax gatherer would gather and present it. They chose wealthy men to be tax gatherers because if the tax gatherer fell short of the amount that was due, then the wealthy man would have to kick in the balance so that it would be what was required. But as was the custom by many of the publicans, the tax gatherers, is that they would exact more from the people than what was required. So what did they do? They pocketed a lot of the money themselves. You could say they were crooks. They were like modern day, except Rob Caprera lawyers, or whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, the, 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 uh, the auto salesman there in the used car lot. She's, oh, here comes another one, gonna get him. Well, this is how they view the, the tax gatherer. They are the worst of the worst. We can't stand them. They're not for us. They're against us. They're, they're working for the Roman government. They don't care about us. They care about themselves in their own pocketbook. So they were a despised people. So for Jesus to be associating with them was a mock on his character, for sure. And then in the 15th chapter, we already mentioned this, we have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. About the first two, the coin and the sheep, when they, when they come in and gathered up, what does Jesus make an analogy to? Our sheep. 
that's come back to the fold, if you were. And Jesus said there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one, what? Sinner that repents. You know what hinders people from getting saved is they don't recognize themselves as sinners. Jesus is a Savior for sinners and sinners only. If you have a righteous attitude about yourself, a self-righteous attitude, you think you're okay, you're disqualified. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance, Luke 5.32. In sinners only is Jesus the Savior of. Joseph Hart in his hymn said, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, He is able, He is willing, doubt no more. He's a Savior for sinners. And what is striking about Jesus' association with the sinners is the kind of compassion he had. And as I said last week in preaching through the Gospel, or about the Gospel of Mark, I mentioned how imitable Jesus should be to us. Who do we want to be like? And I mentioned about different people that people emulate and look and want to be like. They're, they're sports heroes, they're, they're movie theater heroes, or comic book heroes, or whoever they are. The hero for us as believers is Jesus. We want to be like Him. Now, there are some things about Jesus, and B.B. Warfield is very clear on this in his great work on the person and work of the Lord Jesus, said there are things about the Lord Jesus that are not imitable by us. They're just like territory that we can never, we're never going to get into. And the reason was because He was God and I'm a man. Not that he can associate with me and me with him because he's full manhood, but he's also full godhood. So the kind of compassion and love that he had would certainly exceed ours, but that, that we can be uh, seeking to be like. But where I think we have to be careful, and this is just a practical point, because I re- am trying to pound the point across that Jesus was a lover of sinners. This man eats and drinks with sinners. And Jesus says, absolutely. Those that are sick, I mean, those that are healthy, they don't need a physician. This is Luke's language again. But those who are sick. That's why Joseph Hart says, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. We sort of have put a slant on that word sick in a way that we sort of mean like, they're out to lunch. They're like way off. They're off the charts. But sick from the biblical standpoint, this profile at least, is that we are, we are in, we're in need of a healing. We're in need of a physician. We cannot help ourselves. We are dependent upon Him and Him only. But because Jesus was an associate of, maybe associate's the wrong word, but a companion or one who mingled with the unsaved. I used to think when I was in my early stages of coming to the Lord and reading the Bible, I thought it was acceptable for me to go to the frat parties, the dorm parties, and to go to the clubs. And I would say, well, Jesus did that. You know? And I, it kind of gave me a sense of false consolation that, well, Jesus did it. And, you know, He ate and drank with sinners. 
So can I do the same thing? The only difference is a big difference. It says about him that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. That's one of the reasons why the Bible exhorts us, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Unbelievers can have a ruinous effect upon our lives. And we have to be careful of that. We need to know where to draw the line in the sand between gospel outreach to them and over-familiar contact with them. One brother illustrated this way, I remember, a long time ago. He said, it's like two people. You're the believer and there's an unbeliever. The unbeliever is like in the gutter. You're the believer and you lie on the curbside and you're trying to pull that person in the gutter out and up. That person's got the same arm hooked on you. He says, which one's easier to pull the other? The one that's in the gutter. He's got gravity on his side. He's got something that you have and you have something that he doesn't have. You have Christ in you. You have a love for the Lord. You have the Word of God living and abiding in you. But you also have a sinful nature. And that gravity of pull on His part towards you can pull that sinful nature to the surface. And before you know it, you are changed, in a sense, back to your old ways. Watch out. It's dangerous. Jesus didn't have that problem. He came as a Savior for sinners. And He never mingled with them, I don't believe, in some sort of a strictly social fashion. I know He had a missionary mind. That's why He came into the world. So, we need a lot of wisdom. Obviously, we can't avoid the world and we're not expected to. If we're going to be lights, where are we going to shine? Not on a street that's already loaded with lights. We have to be lights in a dark place. That's where we will shine. And there are many ways in which we can shine. But what strikes us, struck me a, a, a lot about the Gospel of Luke and his um, affiliation or, or, or compassion, companionship with the, uh, with the world of the unsaved would be the compassion aspect. Um, and this, these are the three points I want to close with. The compassion. Um, and it's not just for the unsaved, and I'll give you the reasons why. In chapter 7, it almost appears as if Jesus just walked into a funeral procession that approached Him. That He was coming this way, and they were coming that way, and here they come, a funeral procession. He, he observed quickly that this is the child of a widowed woman, and it was her only child. And what was Jesus' disposition towards this event? Do you remember? It says this, when he saw, not the child in the casket, when he saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. Jesus had compassion on her. What do we get from this? Jesus' compassion towards people in hardships of life. Particularly believers, of course. Because that's who his associates are. And the ones that he's the closest with are us, his people. Maybe somebody here, and our brother was sort of hinting at that earlier, that maybe somebody's going through a hardship. 
Just like this widowed woman, her only child, weeping. And Jesus fixed His eyes on her compassionately. And He took care of matters by just touching the casket and telling the child to arise. And He presented the child to the mother. What compassion our Lord Jesus exhibits. The next one is the the Good Samaritan. The Lord Jesus is really the Good Samaritan, isn't He? The others, the priests, the Levites, when they went by and saw this man wounded on the side of the road after having been beaten, they, they passed by. But a Samaritan who was a despised individual by the Jews, just like Jesus was, he came unto his own and his own received him not. The Bible says he was despised and rejected of men, a man so with You would be thinking he would be the last person that would want to help a Jew because he was so hated by the Jews. Jesus puts himself in the category of the Samaritan and that's where we get the word good Samaritan. But here again is the word. It says, he came where he was. Men ruined and beaten and torn there on the ground. He came where he was. Isn't that a wonderful thing about the Lord? He's not above us. He's not alienated from us. He comes to right where we are. Thank God that He came to where you were and where I was and He reached out to us and had compassion on us. You may have been living a certain lifestyle this way and someone else another this way. You might have been a certain age and someone else another way. But wherever you were, He came where you were. Praise God for that. He came where He was and when He saw Him, He had compassion on Him. He has compassion on those who are mistreated. Praise the Lord that He sympathizes compassionately towards those that are hurting people and reaches out compassionately to draw them and minister to them. And as you know, He takes care of His wound, puts them on His own donkey, brings them to the innkeeper and says, whatever it costs, I'll take care of it. And then the last one, of course, is the prodigal son. It says, I won't go into all the details, I love the, the whole thing. Uh, it says, he, he, awoke, he arose, the prodigal son. He arose, and when he was a good way off, or a great way off, his father saw him. And what? And had compassion. And what did he do? And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. It really means kissed him repeatedly. Now, I know we have the father figure there. But I still think the Lord is exhibiting the kind of compassion deity has towards his children towards us, His people. What is that kind of compassion? When we have messed up, but are returning with contrition, the Lord sees us afar off. And He comes running. Running. A father running? This is unheard of. It should be the other way around. The son running to the father. It may be like the son took a couple steps in that direction and that was enough for the father. I see him running. I'm going, I'll come and I'm running after him. I'm going right to him. I'm going to smother him with my love. 
compassionately I'm going to I'm going to lust to him with my care and my sheltering compassion and my forgiveness. And of course he celebrates. My son who was lost is found. He was blind, so to speak, but now he sees. Let us celebrate. What a compassionate God we have. Brothers and sisters, think of Luke as the gospel Jesus being a friend for sinners and the compassion that He has for those of His own who are going through the hardships of life, who does care for those who are being mistreated and who's anxious to approach them lovingly when they come back to the Lord with contrition and tears, we're about to be embraced by our loving God. Let's bow our head and close in prayer. Father, thank You for the Gospel of Luke. Thank You for the physician being ministered to by the great physician. Thank You that he could write about You, Lord Jesus, as being the one Lord to whom we all must go as we have been in our past sick and wounded by the fall. We were far off, Lord, but You had compassion on us. And thank You, Lord, that Your love never fails. Even though we fail You, Lord, and sometimes we go places and do things and think certain ways that our minds and hearts are away from You. But Lord, we bless and thank You that You love us unconditionally. Your care for us is deeper than can be imagined. And we're just praiseful, Lord, this morning that we have, as we were singing, never once have we ever been forsaken by You, Lord. Thank You that You are with us. You care for us. You converted us and You care to desire to minister to us each and every day and throughout the rest of our life. Bless, Lord, these thoughts for Your name's sake. And those that don't know You, Lord, we pray that they might discover the One who is the friend for sinners. We pray, O God, Holy Spirit, that it would please You to convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And they would flee to the arms of the Lord Jesus and trust Him as their Savior. Lord, have mercy, we pray Thee, as we give You thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen.